From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Right now, I think we are in a crisis. Think World War II, think the Korean War, go back to the 1956 Suez Crisis. What you really need right now is government and industry working together to manage the logistics and complexities of a 100 million barrel a day oil system in order to deal with the repercussions and the impact of Putin's war in Ukraine. That's Daniel Jurgen. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning author who for decades has been regarded as one of the world's leading authorities on the global energy market. His 1990 book, The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money, and Power, is widely recognized as the definitive history of the oil industry. Not surprisingly, Jurgen has more than a few incisive observations about the state of global energy in 2022. We discuss the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on the price of gas at the pump, the U.S. shale revolution over the last 20 years, the future of electric vehicles, and the time Vladimir Putin raised his voice in discontent at a question posed by Jurgen. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey folks, before I get to your questions, I have some exciting news. Stay Tuned is nominated for a Webby Award for the Best Individual Podcast Episode in the News and Politics category. The episode features my conversation with the prosecutors who convicted former police officer Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. We discuss their decision-making in perhaps one of the most high-profile trials in U.S. history. Vote for Stay Tuned at cafe.com slash webby. That's cafe.com slash w-e-b-b-y. Thank you, as always, for your continued support of our work. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from Twitter user at Bidhar2021. And it's a simple question. Is the January 6th committee actually being effective? So I think the January 6th committee is actually being quite effective. Now, the first thing you have to realize is what their purpose is, what their mission is, what their mandate is. Remember that the January 6th committee is not charged with bringing a criminal indictment against Donald Trump and others in his orbit with respect to January 6th. They're not going to hold anyone accountable. Their mandate is to get information 
put it out into the public, ultimately with a final report that I believe will be very substantive and detailed and thorough. And in the interim, before too long, public hearings that will shed more light on what happened in the lead up to January 6th and on January 6th itself. So if you're measuring them against a standard of holding someone accountable, they're not able to be effective because that's not their job. But if you're measuring them against the standard of bringing stuff to light and showing the way for the Department of Justice and others to do a different job, then I think they've been quite effective for, among other things, although we on the show and Joyce Vance and I on the Cafe Insider spent a lot of time talking about people who are being intransigent and defiant of subpoenas and the fights about that defiance. The committee has interviewed hundreds of witnesses without problem and without fighting. We don't know the details of all of that, but from the snippets we've seen that have been made public, we know that it's a lot of depth and it's a lot of breadth and it's a huge amount of information. I think they're making their decisions very deliberately. They're making them in a unified way. It's a bipartisan committee. There are two Republicans on it who have done a great job. They seem to be acting with solidarity and with purpose. And they seem to be acting with, with pretty decent speed because they all know there's a clock and that the House may change hands and the work of the committee will come to an end. I think they've handled the fights that they've had very well. I think that their messaging is excellent. And I really think they've been incredibly thorough in who they've asked to talk to and the people from whom they've requested documents. I think the actual effectiveness of the committee will really be on display and really be tested at the time that they have public hearings, which might be in the spring or early summer. Here's a related question in a tweet from somebody who calls himself Deep State Dude, who asks, what steps can we as members of the public take to convince the DOJ that they need to work more expeditiously? Hashtag AskPreet. Well, Deep State Dude, notwithstanding your name, I don't think you're gonna be super pleased with my answer, part of the effectiveness of DOJ is its independence and the way that DOJ is not supposed to put its finger up to the winds and pay attention to what the public generally thinks and the public generally wants, and particularly advocates for or against one party or another. So I think it's perfectly okay, and I've done it myself, express skepticism from time to time or an opinion on the speed with which DOJ is handling a particular matter. In this case, I think you're talking about the January 6th issues. But the Department of Justice, true to its mission and its nature and its history and its legacy, as led by Merrick Garland, is just not going to, I think, be moved by impassioned private citizens saying, do something more, do something more quickly. I think they have a sense of urgency built into them. I think you saw that on January 5th when Merrick Garland gave a speech talking about the fact that the department will be looking at anybody no matter how high and whether they were present or not at the insurrection. So I think they already have it in their heads that they need to do something and they've committed to doing something. I think that your opinion and other people's opinions should be expressed and are well expressed often, but I don't think it has an influence really on the DOJ and nor should it. This question comes in a tweet from Rico's Mama who asks a very simple question. Are you going to have Bill Browder on soon? And the answer to that question, which will be very satisfying, is yes. In fact, he will be on the podcast next week. I saw him this week for the first time since the pandemic at the launch of his book, Freezing Order. And so we had a nice chat. We're looking forward to interviewing him next week about his new book. That is very timely. It happens to, you know, he's taken three years to write the book, as he told me this week. And a lot of it has to do with Russian oligarchs and how we can take money away from them and how to deal with Vladimir Putin and his stifling of dissidents and what could be more timely than that at this moment. So very excited to talk to Bill 
and happy you asked the question. So as you know, every week on the show, I answer your questions. I get some specific questions. I get some humorous questions. I get some general questions. And from time to time, I get asked some basic legal questions. And I think that from time to time, I should talk about basic legal concepts. We have some lawyers, obviously, who listen to the show, but we have far more thoughtful citizens who are not experienced or educated or trained in the law. And I think sometimes we just assume knowledge on the part of the public, and we shouldn't always do that. So today I'm going to answer a question about how a federal grand jury works. And I've gotten that question before from thoughtful folks. And we talk about the grand jury did this, and the grand jury did that, and then the quashing of subpoenas. But we seldom take a moment to say, here's how it actually works. Here's what it actually means. Here's what the actual purpose of the grand jury is. So let me do that for a minute, and maybe in the coming weeks, I can answer other basic legal questions. So first of all, my knowledge is about the federal grand jury, state grand juries, and grand juries in other jurisdictions operate somewhat differently, but I'm speaking just about the federal grand jury. The federal grand jury is made up of just ordinary citizens in the same way that a trial jury is, except the federal grand jury has a maximum of 23 members, odd number, 23. In order for the grand jury to consider an indictment or to hear testimony from someone, there has to be a quorum. A quorum requires 16 of the 23 to be present. And in order for the grand jury to take some action, most commonly to vote up or down on a proposed indictment, you need a simple majority. So 12 of the 23. So unlike a trial jury, where you need unanimity in a criminal case, on a federal grand jury, you only need 12. The other thing that's important to remember that unlike a trial jury, where the standard of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt, unanimously, in a grand jury, it's a majority, and you only have to show probable cause that a crime has been committed on the part of the person identified. That's a much lower standard. There are different kinds of grand juries in the federal system, at least in the Southern District of New York. There was a regular grand jury, which heard simpler, less complicated cases. They sat every day for a month. And then you had multiple special grand juries, which heard more complicated cases that might involve many witnesses or many documents. And they would sit typically two days a week for 18 months. And that grand jury could be extended as needed and required. Why is the grand jury necessary? Well, with very limited exceptions, the only way you can charge a person, ultimately, so that they have their day in court before a federal district court judge who has life tenure is to get a grand jury to vote in the affirmative on a proposed indictment. You can charge people by criminal complaint that can be approved by a magistrate judge, but that only lasts for a certain period of time, after which you must get an indictment from the grand jury. Now, there are people who plead guilty from time to time, and they accept charges that are filed by something that's not called an indictment, but in the federal system is called an information. But that requires the person to voluntarily and knowingly waive the right to a grand jury. Everyone in the United States of America, before going to trial on a criminal charge, is absolutely entitled constitutionally to be indicted by a grand jury. What happens in the grand jury? Well, mostly it's the show for the prosecutor. Unlike other jurisdictions that sometimes allow defense lawyers to participate in the process, in the federal grand jury system, whether you like it or not, it's really the prosecutor's show. And it depends on how complicated the case is, but you can literally go into the grand jury, have one summarizing witness, a case agent, for example, on a particular matter. And because hearsay is allowed in the grand jury, that case agent, through a Q&A with the prosecutor, can present the basic facts of the case sufficient to support the elements of the crime, after which the prosecutor presents a proposed indictment against one or more individuals, and that's drafted by the prosecutor. It's not drafted by the grand jury. The prosecutors do all the work. Gives instruction on the legal meaning of certain terms and phrases and about what the elements of the crime are that the grand jury has to find probable cause to support. Takes questions from the grand jurors, if they have any, and then leaves the room 
leaving the grand jury to deliberate and to vote. Now, there's the famous phrase coined by a former court of appeals judge in New York, I think, that the grand jury will indict a ham sandwich, which is intended to mean that it's very, very easy to get an indictment and there's not much of a process at all. You know, that's, that's not fully true. One thing is, remember, it's much easier to get an indictment than to get a conviction at trial, in part because the standard is lower. It's just probable cause. It's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And if you've listened to the show for any period of time, you know that most prosecutors would not be satisfied knowing that ultimately the case is going to trial with just having a quantum of proof that reaches the threshold of probable cause. At the time that you indict, you want to have proof beyond a reasonable doubt because that's ultimately the burden that you're going to have to bear and to reach. So usually it's the case that you have far more evidence than probable cause because you know you're going to trial. The other thing to realize too is unlike in a criminal case where you're at trial and if your evidence is not great, you're going to end up getting an acquittal on the case in a grand jury proceeding. If you're getting a lot of tough questions, and this is something you get trained on when you become a prosecutor, maybe you haven't brought enough proof, maybe you haven't brought enough witnesses, maybe you haven't brought enough documents. Remember, the grand jury proceeding is a summary process. You're not bringing to the attention of the grand jurors every bit of evidence, every bit of detail like you would in a regular trial. And so if you're finding that the grand jury is skeptical of your proposed indictment, all you have to do is just pull the proceeding. You don't have them vote. If you think that the grand jury doesn't think you have enough evidence, you leave, you end the proceeding, and you collect more evidence, and you bring that further evidence to the grand jury in the future. And a good prosecutor, and most prosecutors I think are good, do not ask the grand jury to vote unless they have very great confidence that they will vote to approve the indictment. One other aspect of the grand jury that gets some attention from time to time is the requirement of secrecy. Prosecutors are not allowed to talk about what happens in the grand jury. The grand jurors are obligated by oath to keep all the proceedings and the testimony and the documents they see absolutely secret. That's per a rule that all prosecutors know very well, Rule 6E, which demands grand jury secrecy. But witnesses who come and testify before the grand jury are not obligated to be secretive about what they've said or what they were asked. And that's why from time to time, you get leaks about cases. So I hope that's helpful to the non-lawyers out there. And I'm happy to answer other basic questions about the criminal law or civil law that you might have. Please keep sending them our way. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, 
one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your website look pretty great, too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. What's the future of the fossil fuel industry that has propelled modern life as we know it? Is the green energy revolution for real? When will gas prices go down? There is perhaps nobody better to think through these questions than the Pulitzer Prize-winning author and vice chairman of S&P Global, Daniel Juergen. Daniel Juergen, what a pleasure it is to have you on the show. Thank you. Glad to join you today. It's a special pleasure because I understand that your daughter is a fan of the podcast. She is a big fan, and she found it. Not only is she a, found, she a fan, she's found it very helpful in her work. That's always great to hear. So one of the reasons I'm excited to have you is on a lot of these issues that you are expert on, I am the opposite, whatever the opposite of expert is, ignoramus. And, and you know, I, I, we have a very well-read, educated audience, but I bet some folks who listen to this podcast we're also ignorant about some of these issues of energy and gas and oil and climate. I don't mean to speak for them, but at least I am ignorant about some things. And the first question I want to ask you about, the first topic I want to address, is something that's a political football, no matter who's in charge, whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans. I remember when I was a Senate staffer back in 2006 and seven, when there was a Republican president and the price of gas at the pump seemed high. I remember standing with Democratic senators uh, who were doing press conferences to rail against the Bush administration for the high price of gas. We now see similar kinds of things being said about the Biden administration. Can you offer us a little bit of an explanation as to, as to what leads to higher gas prices? Sure. And as you say, one administration gets blamed or the other administration gets blamed. And then you get all these accusations that are uh, these sound bites that get recycled about price gouging. Basically, oil is a global commodity and it has a global price. And when it goes up for whatever reason, because of disruption of one kind or another, either because demand outstrips supply or because there's actually physical disruption, the price of oil goes up in the global market and therefore it goes up uh, the gas station, which is the uh, end of the line until it gets put, the, until the gasoline is put into your car. Is the market for gas at the pump a, uh, an efficient market? I think it's a pretty efficient market. We have uh, well over 100,000 gasoline stations in the United States. Most of them are owned by small operators. They buy their gasoline from one of the refiners or one of the other refiners. So it is, you know, it is pretty much a classic market, actually, as I, th as I think about it. It's just odd to some people, at least to me, that the price of gas can be quite different from one station to another that's just a few miles away. What accounts for those differences? 
Well, it can be a few cents uh, from between one station or another, and it depends when they bought the gasoline or which distributor they bought it for, or you know, to, to what the how, what, what kind of margin the gas station owner wants. But also, you'll see a lot of disparity in gasoline between different states, and a lot of that has to do with what kind of gasoline is required uh, for environmental reasons. California gasoline prices are always uh, much higher than they are in other parts of the country. That is due to, to regulation that you have, uh, what's, what the blend of the gasoline is. And you go from winter blend to summer blend. It all has to do with air quality and sort of goes back to basically to the issue of smog. So what about this issue of the salience of a president's or a party's policies? Does that have something to do with the price of gas at the pump? Nothing to do with it or does, does it depend? Well, it does. I mean, if, if the United States was still importing 60% of its oil as it was in 2008, we would be looking at much higher prices than we are today. So policies that have uh, allowed the U.S. to go from being the largest importer of oil in the world to being the largest producer of the world have been beneficial for consumers because otherwise prices would be a lot higher because the market would be a, in a lot shorter supply. But I guess what I'm asking is as a general matter, when political debates are unfolding, and one party says about the other party, you're the problem. Uh, when the party responds, the party in power responds and says, presidents don't have a whole hell of a lot to do with the price of gas at the pump. And among other factors they point to is, look, the price of gas has gone up in the UK and in parts of Europe. That's obviously not affected by Joe Biden's domestic policies. Is that a fair retort? Well, I, I think that is generally the case, that it is a global market. Obviously, specific policies about whether you have more or less supply uh, will affect the overall numbers. But gasoline prices are up everywhere in the world right now because basically uh, we're on the edge of a pretty major uh, oil disruption because of the war in Ukraine, which comes on top of an oil market that is was very tight in terms of the balance between supply and demand even before the war began. So it was already a crisis-prone market, and now it's basically in crisis. So you mentioned something a few minutes ago, allegations of oil and gas companies engaging in price gouging or profiteering, and I hear that a lot. Any truth to the, those arguments? I think, it, I think those are recycled. There have been the first congressional hearing that I could find when I was writing the prize on uh, investigating high gasoline prices was in 1923. And the language of those hearings ever since has been the same. And when the FTC or others go back and examine what happens, it turns out that it was actually market forces that were at work, not uh, price gouging. But it's a, it's it's part of the political vocabulary in the United States. When prices go up, people talk about price gouging. What they should look at is the fact is that we have a really tight world oil market, and that's what's driving the prices up. And the war in Ukraine is what's driving prices up. And if Europe puts a ban on the import of Russian oil, it will be more disruption and prices will go up. What balances it out is if you have a breakout of COVID in China, as you do now, and less economic activity, uh, less travel, uh, and less demand for oil, then the price eases off. Or if you do as uh, President Biden just did, you release 180 million barrels a day, 180 million barrels, about a million barrels a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and you put more oil into the market, price eases down. So it's these global forces that really, uh, that really count. And I actually think that the kind of right now, I think we are in a crisis. Think World War II, think the Korean War, go back to the 1956 Suez Crisis. What you really need right now is 
government and industry working together to manage the logistics and complexities of a 100 million barrel a day oil system in order to deal with the repercussions and the impact of Putin's war in Ukraine. Going back to the complaints and allegations about the oil companies, is it reasonable for the average citizen to think, well, when there's a shock to prices that's going to last for some period of time but won't be permanent, that rather than try to maintain the same level of profit, that the oil company should absorb it a little bit, keep prices low at the pump, and they'll be fine because they're very rich. The oil companies are not at the pump. The pump are, they own very few of the gasoline stations. They're, you know, they're, they're families, small companies. Secondly, let's look at the, go back to 2014. You've had two major price collapse, uh, where oil prices at one actually went into this territory people have never seen before. Negative prices. People were having to pay right. other people to <laughs> maybe, take. Maybe you can explain that too, because negative prices are hard to cover. I mean, the negative prices, when I first got it, you got to wrap your mind around it, <laughs> that you, Pripahara uh, Oil Company, you're producing oil, but you can't find a place. Uh, there's not enough room in a pipeline to put it. So you pay somebody to come in, a, in trucks and pick up oil from your well. That's what uh, negative prices are. Uh, so you've had two major price collapse, big cutbacks in number of people, uh, equipment and so forth. Then you go into this very, never seen a, it's a cyclical business, but we've never seen it, this degree of cyclicality that I've ever seen, uh, in such a short period of time from the COVID lockdowns, which led to those negative prices to where we are today. And so you had these companies were, uh, not very profitable at all. They took on debt. Now they're making money. Uh, and they, what do they do with the money? Uh, they invest it back in their business or they return it to their shareholders who happen to be the pension funds and the 401k of a lot of people. And, um, you know, that's the way, uh, the system works, but you see activity is increasing to produce more oil. But we had these congressional hearings the other day in which they said, why aren't you producing more oil? If you pre-decided tomorrow you're going to start drilling in your lease, it would take because of the supply chain disruptions of equipment, because shortage, not enough people, not enough truck drivers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It would take 12 to 18 months for you to see your first oil or natural gas. That's very interesting. Just another word about the politics. What's your advice, given what you've said so far, to the average citizen paying attention to the political debates? Is the stuff that gets said about Biden and about gas prices, uh, is that mostly just bunk that gets, as you said, recycled from time to time? Or how how should they interpret what they hear? I, I think on both sides. Uh, I think a lot of it is political posturing on both sides. It's sound bites. Obviously, if you're a congressperson, and your constituents is a nurse or a school teacher who's driving 25 miles a day to, to work and 25 miles a day home. And you're facing these costs and you're facing also the fi- rising costs of food and all these other, you know, inflation we haven't seen for, for decades in the United States. Uh, you're going to, you know, you're going to want to be out there. You're going to be out there with the sound bites. It's completely understandable, but it doesn't actually address what the real issues are, which is we have to man, we are, uh, I think we are really in a global crisis, maybe in some ways worse than the crises of the 1970s, the iconic crisis of the 70s, which people talk about, because you have, this is not just about oil. It's also natural gas is in short supply, coals in short supply. Uh, and you have two nuclear superpowers who are increasingly arrayed against each other. And you didn't even have that during the oil crises of the 1970s. Right. So I, I take a, you know, I look at this in a, in a global picture and say, 
you know, this, and therefore, to me, the finger pointing on both sides really ought to be put aside. And what you really need is what we've had in previous decades, a, a collaborative wartime almost uh, system to manage the complexity so that you can get oil or gas, natural gas to where you need it to be. Right now, if the Europe, if it wasn't for U.S. natural gas, LNG, if it were not for the growth of U.S. oil production, I don't think Europe could have withstood the pressure they're getting from Russia right now because of their dependence on Russian uh, energy. Right. I want to talk about that and the effect, how we got to the level of dependence, how they can become independent in a moment. But one more thing about something you mentioned, and that's President Biden's decision to release significant amount of of, uh, of oil from the, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Was that a wise thing to do? Yes, I think it was a wise thing to do. I think that uh, dribbling it out is not what we need. It. We need, if you take a million barrels a day, which is what it is basically, well, that's about one qu- equivalent to about one quarter of the amount of oil that Russia exports every day to Europe. So it is an offset. Right now you're looking for offsets. And the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was created in the 1970s for exactly this kind of emergency, not to manage price uh, in, a, in sort of some fine-tuning way, but to deal with real risks, and real risks are here now. Do you think that when these kinds of things happen, it speeds up interest in and demand for electric vehicles? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I live in Washington, D.C., and Boy, am I seeing a lot of Teslas on the streets. It's really <laughs> striking. I mean, it seems like, where have they all been hiding? So I think that it, it definitely, when you get prices like this, uh, uh, people and uh, electric cars, it's an alternative that didn't exist uh, before. You know, and it's it's a remarkable story. All this started because of a lunch at a fish restaurant in Los Angeles in 2003, where a young uh, electricity enthusiast named J.B. Straubel was trying to convince uh, Elon Musk to do an electric airplane. And Musk said, I'm not interested in that. And he said, well, what about electric car? And Musk said, yeah, I might be interested in that. And that was the origin <laughs> of Tesla. And the rest is history. Yeah, JB became the technical director for 15 years at uh, Tesla. And uh, it was an incredible entrepreneurial, uh, visionary, really hard thing to do. And at first, people thought it was ridiculous. But now you turn around and every automobile maker, just look at the commercials on television. They're all about electric vehicles. And they're saying by 2030 or 2035, they're just going to do electric vehicles. So I think it's a really, you know, this is a very short time frame for something like this to have happened. But there's still constraints. There's still the ability to produce electric cars is still a very small proportion. And there's still something else that we may get into that you get away from oil and gas, but you become much more dependent upon minerals and, and metals. You know, I, I'm pretty confident it's the case that Elon Musk did not create the first electric vehicle, right? No, you know who it was? It was Thomas Edison. And uh, he uh, sunk a lot of his money into it. He was convinced it would work. Uh, and uh, But then along came Henry Ford and the Model <laughs> T. And, uh, and by the 19... Well, first they called electric cars, actually were called ladies' cars because they were not dirty and you didn't have to crank them. And then in the 1920... By the 1920s, they were kind of known as doctor's cars because that was doctors mean they, you know, when they would make home visits in, in the United States, they would drive in them. And then they just faded away. But it was not only, as you say, uh, Elon Musk, parallel to that, it was also unfolding in China, but there it was very much driven by the government, by the state, A, because of pollution, B, climate, 
but C, competitive reasons, because China realized that it could not compete uh, in the global automobile market with internal combustion engines, our normal car engine, because it was too late, but sees electric cars mm-hmm. as a way to leapfrog into the market. And so, by the way, half the world's electric cars today are actually in China. I did not know that. Um, it's part of the reason that electric vehicles weren't taking off, that they just weren't cool. Well, there was that problem. There was General Motors tried to do one in the 1990s, which became uh, ungenerously known as the uh, egg on wheels. It didn't, <laughs> it didn't have much range and it uh, yeah. was really unattractive and you'd have to cram yourself into it. Uh, but what made the difference was that uh, J.B. Straubel's idea was that you could take kind of the batteries that are used in cell phones and string 5,000 of them together and that's how you could power an electric car. Nobody had ever thought of that before or thought it was practical. That was the kind of breakthrough concept and so it was really taking the lithium-ion battery, which, by the way, had been invented in an Exxon laboratory in 1976 when it was thought the world was going to run out of oil, didn't get much commercial traction. Sony adopted in the 1990s for electronic goods, and then it became for computers and cell phones. And then JB said, well, let's put 5,000 together in a battery pack and uh, run a car on it. And people said, that's a crazy idea. But you know what? It worked. And that's uh, that's where the Tesla came from. How much of the success of Tesla in terms of its own sales and and changing the public perception about electric vehicles, how much of it is technology that you just described versus aesthetic? Well, I think that was a very key thing that Tesla decided we're not going to make another egg on wheel. Right, (laughs) we're going to make something super cool. Yeah, let's make something really cool. So the first thing, if you remember, was a sports car. A really, I remember driving one and like, I don't know, I want to say 2010, 2011. And I mean, the acceleration was incredible. And so that was its entry was to come out with something, as you say, that was cool and attractive rather than looking like something that uh, you want to keep locked in your garage. Do you drive an electric vehicle if that's not too personal a question? No, uh, we drive a, a rapidly aging Volvo, which, you know, was kind of what we bought a decade ago. But uh, the pledge is next time we buy a car, it's certainly going to be an electric car. We just don't have very many miles on this one, and uh, it has its scrapes and bumps on it, but it, it does an adequate job. What about you? What do you drive? <laughs> I drive. Um, I don't drive much, uh, take public transportation or, or Ubers. I drive uh, the 2005 Honda Accord that I bought when I first had any car because I moved out of the city of New York. Yes to D.C., and apparently in D.C. you need a car. Right. So what was then a brand spanking new 2005 uh, nice Honda Accord is now my aging 17-year-old vehicle. But it sounds like it's still hanging in there. It is. In fact, you know, the Accord is such a, I don't, they don't advertise with us. <laughs> they didn't put me up to this. This is not a product placement. You know, every once in a while, when I drive the car and, and go to the pump that we've been talking about, uh, or park in a garage in the city, sometimes people make an offer on the car. Because they think it's it's preserved pretty well. It's an an, an antique uh, value. That's right. It'll become a collector's item. Exactly. Exactly. Can I, can I ask you a couple of dumb questions? You know, you know, no question is dumb. But go ahead. Can we run out of oil and coal on Earth? That's not a dumb question. Uh, I mean, we've run out of oil at least five times. Uh, the first time I think was in the 1870s or 80s, thought we'd run out of oil. We thought in the 1970s the world was going to run out of oil. 
uh, at the end of World War One, it was thought the world would run out of oil. So, and how did we not? Uh, what happened is technology, advanced understanding, new discoveries, new resources. So there's clearly, and you know, things depend upon cost and they depend upon technology. So clearly, like the shale revolution, uh, it was thought that the day used U.S. America's days as an oil producer were going were rapidly disappearing until the shale revolution, new technology opened up resources. So, you know, I've always thought there's obviously going to be a constraint or price will determine it. But um, we go through these cycles. I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting question now because, you know, as you look at renewable energy, it's going to need a lot more copper. And the question is, you know, is copper readily available in the, under the Earth's surface or, or not. But so um, that question of running out of oil is a very, it's a recurrent question and it's been a very important driver in, in public policy. And of, and of technology. Yes, absolutely. I mean, so, so this thing that you talk about is fascinating to me because I don't think it's well known. And it's remarkable that it's not well known given how big a deal it is and given how when I was growing up there was so much concern about, as you mentioned, running out of oil and dependence on the Middle East and other places. Just to repeat the statistic you mentioned a moment ago, in 2008, the U.S. imported on a net basis 60% of its oil. It's not that long ago. Not that long ago. And now we're basically self-sufficient. You talked about the shale. Can you explain more about the shale revolution? And then, and then also, why is, it, you know, wh why is that a fact that is not more celebrated and acknowledged and known? Well, I, I do find it... Very interesting. I was in a conversation with a, you know, a sort of centrist democratic senator, and he was talking about right-sizing uh, the U.S. commitment to the Middle East. That was his kind of policy point of view. And I thought, well, you wouldn't be saying that if we were still importing 60% of our oil. Right. And that was an example to me that just, it kind of has gone unrecognized. But I think there's been a change in the last, um, in the last three months, actually, pre on that. But, uh, you know, again, uh, it's interesting how often big changes are results of, you know, a few individuals or one obsessive individual. And just as we we're talking about the electric car, uh, and growing out of an obsession, there was a, 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 a really it was not an oil man. It was a natural gas producer in Texas who was convinced you could get this stuff called shale oil or shale gas really out, out of very dense rock in the textbooks. And the petroleum engineer professor said it's not possible. And by putting different technologies together, it was found that it is possible, and that's what transformed the position of the United States. And and it's something that people like Vladimir Putin hate. They hate that the U.S. is in this position. They hate the fact that U.S. natural gas can now compete with Russian gas in Europe, which is so crucial. Right. Uh, but I think it went unremarked. But around November, as gasoline prices started going up, you had the Biden administration suddenly talking about, you know, can you guys, you know, you companies, can you increase production? First they asked the Saudis to, and then they turned to the domestic industry. And um, and U.S. production is going to increase this year. It's going to increase in this country more than all the combined increases everywhere else in the world. But I think what's really driven at home is the situation with Europe, because Europe has had this high dependence on Russian gas, the major alternative to Russian gas is liquefied natural gas, LNG. 
and that typically has been imported from Qatar or Nigeria or Australia. But now the United States this year, having been really nowhere in this six years ago, is now going to be the world's largest exporter. And I can tell you, tomorrow I'm meeting with people coming from governments in Europe who are here basically seeing if they can get more U.S. LNG uh, to reduce uh, the, the reliance on uh, natural gas from Russia. So for Europe now, as well as for the United States, U.S. LNG now, liquefied natural gas, is now seen as a great geopolitical and very vital uh, strategic asset. What a change. A huge change. And just to go back to the issue of, of where credit should be given, the very substantial move from being a very significant importer of oil to being self-sufficient over a period of a decade or so, can any of that credit be laid at the feet of a politician or is it all technology? Well, I've been looking at this recently. There was the U.S. government starting in the 1970s started to provide some R&D research funding to try and understand better shales and that continued for decades and decades. And so I think that research was important but I think what really happened was this was um, a group of entrepreneurs that called independents, not the major oil companies, who, who, who caught on to this and started to develop it. And so it was, from that point on, it was really driven by the private sector. But I think as in so many other things, spending money on research and development has really been one of the critical things, of course, that the federal government does. And that was very helpful. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Daniel Jurgen after this. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This issue of self-sufficiency in recent times on the part of the United States, how would you characterize how important that is to U.S. national security? Well, I think, um, you know, I, I think it is, it gives the U.S. a flexibility on foreign policy. I mean, I can give you two examples where I've seen its impact. One, I'm on, uh, I'm the only non-Indian on the think tank of the Indian Ministry of, of uh, Petroleum. And I can see that the relationship, although it's complicated now, the fact that, uh, the U.S. is ex importing, exporting oil and natural gas to India has become one of the foundations in what has generally, at least until recently, been a much improving relationship between India and the United States. Secondly, and the one that I do write about in, in the new map is, uh, I was at this thing called the St. Petersburg International Energy Forum and Vladimir Putin had as his guest that year, uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel of Germany. And you could see how much they really detested each other. But I asked the, you know, had the opportunity to ask the first question. So I asked the question that one always, would always ask of Russia before all this started. What are you going to do to diversify your economy so you're not so dependent on oil and gas, 40% of his budget? And, but I, by accident, I mentioned shale. And at that point, he started shouting at me and said, this is barbaric. Shale should be stopped. <laughs> and I realized. This is, this, I'm sorry. Just to be, who's, who's shouting this? 
a man named Vladimir Putin. Oh, yeah, I've heard of him. In front of 3,000 people. So, you know, <laughs> as you can imagine, I slumped down in my seat. I mean, it was really a little scary, actually. Uh, but the, did you but eat any? Did you, did you have a food taster after that? I, I was very careful. <laughs> I only ate canned food after that. No, but, but uh, what, what struck me is that he saw that shale would do two things for the U.S. It would make U.S. competitive with his gas in Europe. And he also saw that it would enhance the position of the United States in the world. It would it'd be another uh, more flexibility in foreign policy. And, uh, you know, in a sense, he saw that earlier than a lot of other people saw it. And uh, so I think I think there's I think there's no question that this puts the U.S. in a stronger position, as well as it means instead of sending money overseas to go into somebody's sovereign wealth fund, it's the, the dollars that are earned basically stay in the United States and circulate in our economy. And it's also been a big deal in our balance of, of, of payments improvement. Before the war in Ukraine began, what was the level of European dependence on those energy sources from Russia? Um, about 35% of Europe's oil uh, was coming from Russia, and roughly the same amount of uh, Europe's natural gas was coming through pipelines to Europe. So uh, that was the degree of dependence, the overall dependence. Some countries were more dependent, yeah. like Germany. And, and why Germany so dependent? Was that wise? Uh, well, I think that Germany saw, they believed in, um, I forgot the German phrase for it, but sort of peace through trade, that if if you buy from Russia and they and they buy from you, you create an economic foundation that uh, helps stabilize the relationship. And uh, and also, of course, it was a neighbor, it was convenient. And, you know, I've always thought uh, that, in fact, the opening up of trade between Europe and the United States and the Soviet Union helped to er erode uh, the Iron Curtain by kind of showing people there was life outside uh, uh, the Iron Curtain. Uh, but... Germany looked on this as, you know, Russia's a reliable supplier, and that was Russia's brand, we're a reliable supplier, and it was economic to do it that way. Uh, so I think until recently, uh, it was seen that this was kind of part of a globalization, the integration of Russia into the global economy. And I know the U.S. government had encouraged uh, expanded uh, energy relations with Russia, too, as a way to kind of build economic foundations that would be separate from politics, but um, that worked until it didn't work. So fair to say that in a relatively short period of time, a country like Germany went from 0% dependence on Russian oil to 35 to 40%. Well, I, I think it was, it was over decades uh, that Russia became, but Russia really recovered under Putin as an oil exporter and became a major exporter. And then the natural gas pipelines really went back to the 1980s and a battle that involved the Reagan administration. But um, that's right. It was, you know, there's a picture in the new map of the first Nord Stream pipeline being built and it shows Chancellor Merkel and the EU people and then Russian President Medvedev all with big smiles on their face, you know, turning the uh, the knobs, uh, the, the wheel to start the flow of, of gas uh, into Germany. And at that point, it was considered a, uh, a positive at that point, I emphasize. So so what's the future? It's hard to predict, but what, what do you think is the future of European trade and importation of oil and gas from Russia? Well, I think it is what the German uh, uh, 
Chancellor Schultz said a, a, a Zeitenwende, I think is the way it's pronounced, a, a change, a change of eras that uh, Germany, I, I mean, I think that Europe is basically saying we're done with Russia. At least we're done with Putin's Russia and, uh, that, um, turning away. I mean, one of the things that he's, Germany's announced, it's going to build three new terminals to receive LNG from the United States and other countries, which they had not bothered or thought about doing before, talked about it, but it didn't, there was no urgency. Now there's a high degree of urgency. And so I, I think that we're going to, um, you know, there are pretty massive sanctions that have been put on Russia. And I think it's going to isolate the Russian economy from the Western world, make Russia more of a dependency of, on China, basically a dependency of China. And that, uh, I think, uh, uh, the revelations that have come out of Ukraine about what the Russian troops have done, uh, what Russian missiles have done, Russian rockets have done, and drone, uh, that I think, um, that they're, they're moving towards, uh, greatly reducing, if not, uh, ending, uh, imports of energy from Russia, at least as long as Vladimir Putin is in power. And that's, and that will be a very big deal. And it comes with economic costs. It comes with, uh, uh, you know, higher prices. It comes, you know, and there, and there are, uh, politicians, uh, like Marine Le Pen in France who will exploit those higher prices to try and win political power. So it's not an easy decision to make, but it is, uh, I think that, uh, I think what's happened is so shocking and so unbelievable in the 21st yeah. century that the impact is going to be very great. I think that's right. But here's what confuses me. Given the level of dependence, that you say European countries had on Russian oil and gas, 35, 40% in some places higher than that. Why is it not a, an absolute catastrophe in Europe? How are they making up for that oil and gas? They're not there. They're not yet there, but what the Europeans are doing now is, uh, and President Biden has, has actually said the U.S. will provide more LNG, you know, because he's looking at what's coming online. It's running a big economic risk and the Germans, you know, that I talk to say, well, is this a trade-off between, uh, not pass, you know, passing hundreds of billions of dollars a year to Putin, but are we going to pay the price in a heavy recession? And who knows what the political impact right. at home of a heavy recession will be. So these are very momentous decisions, uh, and, uh, they're fraught with risk, whatever you do. Are you, were you surprised given your deep understanding of the the interconnectedness between Europe and Russia and oil and gas that the Europeans have stood strong? Yes, I think, well, I think one of the things the Biden administration did, which was very wise, is they didn't keep the intelligence to themselves. They communicated what was happening. And I think that was that the Russians were building up, that the Russians were, this was not just an exercise, they were going to invade. So I think that help build a consensus uh, 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 along the way. And I, when I talk to Europeans, they're shocked that just within a couple hundred kilometers of them, a couple hundred miles, you'll have this massive war being fought in, in Europe. Uh, but I think the person who may be the most surprised is one Vladimir Putin. Yeah. Because if you go down the list of his miscalculations, one, he miscalculated how his own army would perform. Two, he miscalculated that there would, the Ukrainians would not welcome them with flowers, but with resistance. Three, as you're saying, that the Europeans would hang tough despite their dependence. Four, he assumed the U.S. was a very weak country, uh, uh, you know, politically divided January 6th, that the U.S. would not get its act together. 
And, uh, and, and then on top of that, he assumed, well, oil markets are very tight already. Prices are high. You know, this is the time I ought to go. I have the high cards. Uh, and at least on all those other assumptions, uh, there really turned out to be big miscalculations. And you can see the fury and hatred with which he's, uh, responded to yeah. this recognition that he was wrong. You know what else was a big miscalculation on his part? No. What? Yelling at you. <laughs> I see all of this as karma. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, at the time, you know, it's something that I very vividly remember and sort of, you know, when you go through, as you know, personal experiences like that, you think about what it means and, and you certainly don't forget. What are reasonable goals for not just the United States, but for the world in terms of uh, halting climate change? Well, I think that, I, I think directionally, there's it's clear the direction the world's going to go in. How easy or how hard it's going to be, I mean, it's one thing to do it on a PowerPoint, another thing to do it in a world of real engineering. And, you know, there are complexities there that are not, um, that are not really looked at. And it's one of the things that, that you know, that I've talked about in, in, in the book. I talked about, you know, people going back to your, your, your politics, you know, the phrase, uh, big oil. We hear a lot about that when gasoline yeah. prices go up. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty convinced we're going to be talking about big shovels because it's going to involve an enormous amount of mining to provide the materials that you need to, um, whether it's for electric car batteries or for wind turbines and so forth. I mean, the amount of, I mean, the sun and the wind are free, but not the materials that go into them. Uh, you're going to need a lot, a lot, lot, lot more copper uh, in, in, as we become more electrified. So I think that... How, how scarce is copper? Well... It's funny you say that because we're doing a study on it right now. Of course uh, you are. <laughs> uh, well, I, no, I became really obsessed with this question and because here's the targets, but then you look at the co copper supply and you don't see it now. And it can take, you know, according to the International Energy Agency, 16 or 20 years to open a new mine. And it is, again, it's an international business. It's very hard to open new mines in the United States because of the permitting process. Uh, so... It will mean being dependent on other countries. And then you see, oh, 70% of copper smelting is done in China. And China has a strong position in that. And you start to see, you know, kind of a new configuration. So I think, um, you know, I think there have been some really positive. The costs of solar have gone down like 90%. A lot of that is because the solar panels are made in China. But it's 90% drop. Wind has become... The, the wind turbines are much bigger. Uh, they're much more efficient. So wind and solar, most of the new electric generating capacity in the United States is going to be wind and solar, but you have your existing capacity. And, uh, but for that, or if you really move to, you know, large scale, uh, electric cars, you're going to need just a lot of materials. One estimate is for a thousand pound electric car battery, you have to move 500,000 pounds of earth. To get oh my the goodness. stuff you need. So, it's almost as I mean, bad as crypto. Yeah. <laughs> well, crypto, by the way, is extremely <laughs> energy intensive. Yes. No, that's why I'm making the yeah. point. Yes, exactly. And uh, yes, I don't know. In fact, I, you know, I, that's a very good question. Just, you know, what is, I mean, it's, it's a lot of electricity. You should do a to, graph, the relative energy consumption. Yes. Creating a car battery versus a Bitcoin. Yes. Um, you know, you, you have pointed out something that is obvious, but it hadn't really thought about it in this way. Because so many people's minds are focused on climate change, and we talk about renewable energy, uh, 
you know, like wind and I don't know if you call them call it renewable energy, but you know, they don't, there's not a carbon issue with wind and solar, but those two sources of energy were not developed for the purpose of halting climate change. People just wanted something other than oil because of the over-reliance of the U.S. on foreign oil. Is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that um, wind and solar are both about um, 50-year-old, modern wind and solar, 50-year-old industries. And they got their start in response to the oil crises of the 1970s. Just, you know, we need alternatives. Uh, and, you know, New York City was burning oil for environmental reasons so it wouldn't use coal to generate its electricity back then. It wanted sort of high-quality oil from Nigeria. And so it got started. But for 40 years, it was, you know, it didn't get anywhere. And But people kept after it. There were incentives to continue to develop it. The technology continued to improve why substantially. Didn't, why, did it, why did it not take off? Was it because it was just not cost-efficient yet? Yeah, it was just, it, it was sort of young technologies. You needed to get, you know, to... To get, you needed to get to scale, and then both wind and solar got to scale and got their costs down, and the technology so much improved that around a little over a decade ago is when they really started to take off, and then you would get these amazing drops in in the costs of solar that have been just stunning. To go down ninety percent in costs is is amazing, uh, and so. But it took, you know, it it what it kind of tells you is that technologies take a long time. You know, you think about, I don't know, lot, probably a lot of people listening to this podcast, some got Johnson Johnson, but a lot of them got Moderna or Pfizer. And you sort of say, well, it was done in a year, Operation Warp Speed, but it was based upon maybe 30 years of scientific research and failures and successes and so forth right. to get to scale. And I think that's often the history of technologies. They Once they take off, they really take off, but it can take decades to get to the takeoff point. And what's the role of government? Uh, and, and are there are there are there particular success stories in government creating incentives for people to adopt this? Well, I think the that there continue to be attractive incentives, tax incentives, and so forth for wind and solar, which I think have been uh, important. I mean, you know, if you want to get solar for your house, you could, um, you know, you get state and federal tax credits and support. But I think the biggest thing I headed a. During the Clinton administration, I headed a task force in energy R&D, uh, research and development for the Department of Energy, and came away just such a believer that one of the great strengths of this country uh, is the money that it spends on research and development on that early stage, the continuity that it creates for researchers so that they are not having to constantly be writing grant proposals, but they can spend their time on their projects and so forth. And that's what really, you know, the investment in research and development to me is what is really where the really big payoff is. Let's talk about the more traditional sources of energy for a moment. What's the future of coal? Um, it's, well, okay, so here's, you know, you talk <laughs> so about energy easy transitions. Questions. Okay, here, energy transition. Let's start yeah. with that. Yeah. So oil gets discovered in Western Pennsylvania in 1859. It's not till the 1960s that oil overtakes coal as the world's number one resource. But guess what? The world is using three times more coal now than it did in the 1960s. I think coal is going to be squeezed out of the United States uh, unless natural gas, other prices go up. But coal is uh, is the default for many developing countries uh, for electric generation because it's because it's cheap. It's cheaper than the other sources. Uh, but you know, but there's enormous. Uh, 
you know, pressure not to use coal. But if you're a developing country, you have different priorities than a developed country often. So, so you really think that coal will have full demise in the United States at some point? Well, I don't know full demise because I think it will still be a, a, a backup um, when, you know, but I think it's, I think it's down to about 20% of our electric generation right now. Coal plants are being retired and no one is building a new coal plant. So I think it will just continue to get squeezed down uh, as, uh, you know, as, as plants are retired. Is the remaining attachment to coal in the U.S. mostly a vestige of nostalgia and, and, and political constituency? Or is there any logic to it? Well, I think it's there. It, it has to do with cost uh, and, uh, and availability and how, you know, you can't just, you know, people want electricity. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, in a time way, you can replace coal. You know, the, the U.S. has had the biggest reduction of any country in its CO2 emissions over the, you know, we're, our CO2 emissions now are back to the level of the 1990s and early 1990s. And our economy has, I think, doubled during that time. The biggest single reason actually has been natural gas pushing coal out of electric generation because you just produce, you, there's less CO2 emissions from gas than, than coal. That's, and Ernie Moniz, who was the energy secretary yeah. under Obama is the one who, you know, has, has, has pointed that out in a, a number of times. Now, here's another energy source that gets more attention now, again, for reasons that were not part of the discussion some time ago. Is nuclear going to make a comeback in this country or other countries? I think surprisingly, um, it looks like that. Obviously, the Fukushima disaster, which could have been averted if a seawall had been five feet higher, uh, in, in Japan was, you know, kind of ended what was then seen as talked about as a nuclear renaissance. And the experience of building new nuclear, traditional nuclear power plants in the United States has been very negative. Uh, the costs keep going up, the delays, the regulatory issues, the uh, construction issues. Uh, but in other parts of the world, um, well, there are two, two elements to it. I mean, uh, Emmanuel Macron came in as president of France saying, we're going to start to push out you know, we're not going to be so dependent on nuclear, which is like eight, over 80% of France's electricity. But now we've had this crisis. What has he done? He said, we're going to have six new nuclear plants, reactors, and maybe another eight. Britain just came out uh, within recent days with an energy security strategy where nuclear plays a role. Uh, uh, so there are just more, ex more examples of that. But I think the other thing is that there's a lot of focus on what are now called small nuclear modular nuclear reactors, which instead of being built on a site where you have thousands of working work people and you have to keep changing and so forth and and kind of customize it, kind of factory produced uh, reactors, much smaller. And I was struck, we, we have an energy conference in Houston and I heard, just heard three of the CEOs, industrial CEOs, not energy company CEOs, talk about small nuclear reactors as though they expect they may indeed be commercial by the 2030. And I think there is, for those who are looking for carbon-free electricity, uh, that's one way, you know, that's one way to get there. And what you get from that, one of the problems with wind and solar is they go up and down depending on the wind and the sun. Nuclear is what's called baseload. You could just kind of have it run steadily. And so I think we may be at a, a point where, you know, nuclear starts to maybe in a different form uh, come back again. 
in a way that it seemed the door had been se- had seemed to be slammed shut. No one slammed the door shut more shut than Germany, right. which in a weekend Chancellor Merkel decided no more. We're shutting down our nuclear. But now Germany, as it looks at its dependence, which has grown on Russian natural gas, you find Germans, even green Germans, uh, from the Green Party saying, maybe we made a mistake. Yeah, that's very interesting. But you don't think it's making a comeback in the U.S.? I think it would, uh, if it comes back in the U.S., I think it would be in these small nuclear reactors. I don't think any, no utility is going to risk its balance sheet and uh, its finances on trying to build a big traditional nuclear power plant of the kind that were built in the 70s and 80s in the United States. And that's because of, of what? Actual risk or perception of risk? Well, I think it's 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 cost and regulatory delay. I yeah. think those are the two things. And, you know, you, you start to build something and instead of taking five years, it takes 10 years, your costs triple. Uh, and and there's so many different regulatory, it's just too complicated. And And I don't think they feel they need to anymore. And so... As I said before, right now, the main thing utilities are building is is wind and solar. And just for the record, nuclear is, in fact, better in terms of climate change issues? Well, it's it's carbon-free. It doesn't produce carbon. So that's a yes. So, and it's, yeah. you know, it is still about 20% of our, I think it's still about 20% of our electricity supply, even though plants, is, as you know, are being shut down. Yeah. And also, can we clarify once and for all, do windmills cause cancer? Not to my knowledge. <laughs> Didn't Trump say that once? Maybe he did say that living there. I, I mean, mean, we'll, we'll fact I mean, check that and we'll take this out of the show. I, I mean, it's, yeah, but I'm pretty uh, sure he said windmills cause cancer. Yeah, I I suspect that there is um, something less than zero evidence for that. We talked about we talked <laughs> like about negative, negative. We talked about negative price, and now we'll talk about right. negative evidence. Negative evidence. Negative. Negative. Uh, well, let's put it this way. It w- let let me let me put it in terms that would. Makes sense to you. It wouldn't stand up in court. Yes. Now you're speaking language that I understand. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, before we go, I want to ask you about something that I've been thinking about while we've been having this conversation. And one thing this conversation brings home to me is is just how important technology is and advancing technology and solving problems that that benefit people and can actually benefit the earth. And some of these things are not expected, but I imagine some of the things for people who are in those circles with respect to mRNA. Uh, we talked about that relating to the COVID vaccine. So my question to you as an expert is, what are some things we don't read about in the popular press that are promising technologies that could have this kind of game-changing effect in the future when it comes to energy? Well, I, you know, we, we did a, actually did a report for uh, Bill Gates' foundation on that. And you know, I, I don't know that there are any secret things that aren't being thought about, but the two things that loom that could be very significant, if you have major breakthroughs on battery technology yeah. at scale, where you can store electricity generated by wind and solar, that's a big game changer. The other one that's out there is the thing that people didn't take very seriously three or four years ago, as we talked about before, is hydrogen. And can you really shift to uh, an energy system based much more on hydrogen, that would be uh, a big change. But I think, uh, but what we don't know is about the obsessed individual who's out of sight, uh, who has the resources and the staying power to carry things in a in a different direction that we don't see right now. I mean, because I, I am, you know, surprises do keep happening. And uh, sometimes it takes time for our minds to catch up with them. But I think in this area, as in other areas, 
uh, it will be, you know, changes, you know, fusion, which people said was 50 years off. Now they're saying maybe it's only 25 years off. So I, I think one thing that I've learned, uh, you know, as a student of, uh, uh, of energy and, and its different ramifications is, um, you know, don't, don't get locked in on one view of the world because in three or four or five years it can change. And what we're seeing right now, this isn't technology, but we're seeing with Russia is, um, dramatically reshaping the future of energy for the world. Yeah. And I think, um, there's still some turbulence to come. Are, you know, in terms of spending the time and energy and having patience to develop game changing technologies when it comes to energy, are the right governments and the right companies spending the time and the resources for that purpose? Well, I've seen, I'm seeing, um, we, we created this thing called the Agora, which is a, uh, which is a kind of a meeting place for technological innovation at our conference that we do every year in Houston called Sarah Week. And it started off as just almost this little thing over in the corner. Now it was, it was huge. So I would say looking at energy, if I just wandered through this whole area that we called the Agora, I would see that there's more emphasis and interest in innovation and technology uh, uh, all across the energy spectrum than there's ever been before. And, you know, there are a lot of things to worry about in the world, but that's one thing that makes one more optimistic. Final question, and then I'll let you go. You mentioned your book a few times, fairly recent book, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. What's your ultimate conclusion in that book? The ultimate conclusion, uh, well, I think there were maybe two or three. One is that geopolitics uh, uh, is going to continue to interact with energy. I spent a lot of time in the book actually focused on Putin, Russia, Ukraine, and natural gas in Europe. Uh, I, the other thing I spent a lot of time in the book on was uh, China, the U.S., and energy and, and geopolitics. The other is that uh, we're in an energy transition, uh, trying to do it in a more compressed time than in the past, uh, and to be uh, realistic about uh, the, uh, you know, about the about the challenges and what has to be done. And um, you know, it was interesting. I called the conclusion. I used the word disruption, um, and lo and behold, you know, you could. I, in the book, I said that Ukraine was going to be the great issue between Russia and the United States, but I, of course, did not envision that it would <laughs> become this horrible, more prescient uh, than you realize. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. That uh, just how significant it is, and just how tied up. Uh, I guess it's really how tied up energy and geopolitics are. I guess is what would be my real takeaway from the book. Daniel Jurgen, it's been a treat having you on the show. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, and I much uh, much value this wide-ranging conversation. <laughs> wide-ranging is what we do. Thank you. My conversation with Daniel Jurgen continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Daniel Jurgen. If you like what we do, 
rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tadashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Sean Walsh, and Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.